Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I know the Damian Lillard shot might be considered old news by now as we tape this on a Thursday and it goes up by a Friday, but I just wanted to get this off my chest. I can't remember a more thorough punking across all multimedia channels of one player <laughs> to another player as you know the Damian Lillard shot over Russell Westbrook and you know we took the the shovels out and kind of buried Westbrook on the last episode so we probably don't need to dig in and do that again for another 30 minutes but uh-huh. it got to the point where I almost felt bad for him and I understand there was a lot of people who were saying oh it's kind of like a white hat versus black hat situation right like here's this valiant conquering hero with Damian Lillard and He's kind of shoving all of the pettiness from the thunder in their face. And like, there's some truth to that. That's really only like half the story. I mean, the wave coming off the court after making this shot was just like brutally cutting to somebody's <laughs> heart. I don't know if you saw Yusuf Nurkic's t-shirt, which said, got bricks next question, which he wore at the game. Um, yeah. I mean, they, and then of course the interview that Lillard did with Haynes, where he's just dropping every curse word in the world that Elizabeth should never be able to read and just <laughs> essentially undressing Westbrook, the Thunder and their entire crew. Like it's a Suge Knight speech. Um, I was just curious, like, did he set a new bar here in terms of how thoroughly he punked Westbrook over this last week? Like I remember after that Mavericks uh, title, you know, Deshaun Stevenson had all those LeBron t-shirts. Uh, yeah. Mark Cuban would take the trophy to the bathroom. I mean, they really savored that victory. But I really felt like Lillard's uh, comfort with social media and technology and his friendliness with the reporters uh, and obviously the drama of the shot itself just came together in this giant hurricane of punking. And I don't know if we've seen anything <laughs> quite like it. What do you think? Oh, man, a hurricane of spite from Damian Lillard. Um, I think it was great. I think that if we're really talking history, we have to consider the stage that they were on. This was ultimately just a first-round series. And Good I think point. I'm thinking of Dirk Nowitzki in the finals, punking LeBron and Dwayne Wade after they made fun of his flu in game three, I think, halfway through that series. And then Dirk came back and just humiliated them in the most spectacular way possible. And then for symmetry, six years later, LeBron James did almost the exact same thing to the Golden State Warriors after I think it was Klay Thompson said something halfway through the 2016 finals about LeBron James. And then Draymond obviously called him the B word. Um, And LeBron came back and pulled off the greatest upset in NBA Finals history. So those two are higher for me. I'd have to think harder about other candidates. Halloween costumes were involved. You know, there was like stage props. I mean, it did (laughs) drag out. It became meme after meme after meme. But look, I think this lower one's going to age pretty well, even though it's on the smaller stage like you're mentioning, because that picture of him staring into the camera, that's going to be a meme for approximately the next 25 years, right? The wave, that's going to be a gif for a solid decade. There's no question about it. And I mean, some of those pull quotes, I thought were going to break Instagram where, (laughs) you know, Here's the thing. We need to be very clear. The Lillard thing was 10 out of 10 awesome. I mean, honestly, I found myself having to remind myself that like I'm a professional sports writer and I shouldn't just be sitting here retweeting like Blazers highlights all day. 
But after that game, I wanted to, I devoured every piece of content emerging from that Lillard game winner. The, I mean, his Instagram post, I'm looking at it here, quoting Sun Tzu, (laughs) it is the unemotional, reserved, calm, detached warrior who wins, not the hothead seeking vengeance and not the ambitious seeker of fortune. Like, that is just ether. And then pile that on top of uh, the wave and the dozens of, like, slow motion highlights of him owning Russ and Paul George. It was incredible. And then Paul George, of course, compounded the problem when he came out and said, you know, it was a bad shot by the percentages. Like, just... Just awful all around for the Thunder. Uh, yeah, but Sun Tzu is my favorite Lillard. sports columnist. I think I got to say. I mean, are, are we totally sure that's a legit quote? I don't know, but it was an incredible quote. I didn't well, uh, take the moment yes. to fact check it. The other thing that I forgot to mention earlier, you know, contributing to the punking is that even Terry Stotts got it on the action. And look, he's made a whole name for himself for decades by being. Uh, you know, fairly boring and straightforward and low key in all of his press conferences. I don't know if you saw his post game uh, game five press conference. It looked like he had hit the champagne a little bit. He was like trolling Barry <laughs> Trammell. He was going on and on for like a minute and a half, making fun of Westbrook's routine on the podium. I mean, it was clear mm-hmm. it was like a team wide punking here. And uh, that was kind of funny because you knew we- uh, Lillard was going to have something for Westbrook if he won that series. There was no question about it. The way he was just biding his time as those games unfolded, you know, not really reacting to Dennis Schroeder tapping his wrist and and so on. And yeah. I mean, the, retweeting Paul George and just saying LOL, you know, on that clip of Paul George calling it a bad shot. That was another degree of punking. That's what I'm saying. This one's up there. I guess that's my point. It absolutely is. I will never forget it. Um, And I don't think that anyone in this playoffs is going to do anything cooler than what Lillard did to the Thunder over the last 10 days. I think that I tweeted it at the time when he hit that shot. But I really I mean, no matter what happens over the next month or two, nothing is going to top Lillard. And um, and we'll see what Lillard does over the next couple weeks as well. Like that should be cool. But that moment was so perfect and self-contained um I don't know it, it was about as good as the playoffs ever get and the one thing I would add is that you know Clay Thompson and Draymond Green in the finals a couple years ago a lot of that was just sort of trash talk back and forth the reason the Lillard thing was more dramatic and maybe cooler was because the Lillard Westbrook thing really did seem pretty personal and Dame played it perfectly and was able to kind of conceal his emotions throughout most of the series and was just, he he really was the unemotional calm warrior um as Sun Tzu everyone's favorite takesman would put it <laughs> but uh but then to kind of deploy that strategic Chris Haynes piece afterward was amazing like the the Haynes thing was one of my favorite basketball articles over the last like four or five years that was awesome it was awesome. Yo, Machiavelli or Sun Tzu? Like, if you could only choose one. Like, <laughs> Who you got? In Who the bracket. Got? Oh, man. All right. Well, so should we talk about current events? And then we can talk more about Lillard, because that, that whole game was pretty special. Um, but, so you, you uh, want to talk about current events rather than debating you know, centuries-old philosophers? Sure, fine. Duck the question. Go ahead. Bring on the Warriors well, talk. Well, <laughs> yes, we have, to, we have to acknowledge the Warriors here. We've got a question from Christopher who says... Calling captain accountability. Russ has been sufficiently buried over the last week, so let's look for comments on number one. Playoff Harden, who just shot 37% from the field against the Jazz with only one game above 45%. Here we go. And went 
Shanahan, when interviewed about his 0 for 15 start in game three, I believe it was, he said he didn't even notice. Well, I didn't notice either. This is the same Harden we've been watching for years in the playoffs. And then he continues to say, we yeah, also keep need the to editorializing talk about the to Warriors. Yourself. That, that, that's just, come on, be ethical here. He, Read the questions. He's, he wrote it. He wrote it. Um, and then he says, we so also you need wrote to talk it? about this the Warriors. This sounds ghostwritten to me. <laughs> well, listen, great mind. I'll put it like, shout out to Christopher. He says, it wasn't enough for Golden State to mail it in for 70 regular season games. Now we get to watch them do it in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Is the most talented team of all time also turning into the lamest team of all time? What do you think, Ben? Give me your thoughts. You can you can talk Harden. We can talk Warriors. Take this whatever direction you want to go. Uh, great questions from Christopher. Great setup. I really appreciate it. I think you called on the last episode for people to do our jobs for us and send in good questions. Christopher, you answered the bell. We really appreciate it. <laughs> now, with Harden, um, I think I understand what people are saying. There was a couple of games there where, where there were serious question marks, and game five was just strange. I mean, he missed a dunk. He missed a wide-open layup. He did. You know, He looked like he was checking out a little bit at moments. It seemed like Chris Paul was trying to, you know, get through to him, snap him out of it a little bit. And, and you hate to see that in a closeout performance, especially based on, uh, you know, a, a few of the falters in the years past. I thought overall, though, he was still easily the, the driving force of that series, easily the best player in that series. They won it in five games. Utah was a really good team. They made some good defensive adjustments throughout the course of that series that did contribute to Harden's struggles. And I thought mm-hmm. he did a decent job with the counter adjustments. He looked a lot looser and more relaxed shooting the ball from the perimeter early in that series than he did late in the series. And I don't think fatigue is really an issue here. So then that goes back to some of the mental questions that you've raised in the past. He is going to have to answer that in the second round. There's no doubt about it. Uh, But to me... Let me say this on Harden, though. It's my misgivings and the source of my skepticism is kind of twofold, actually, because... Number one, I think one of the reasons he struggles in the playoffs is that his game doesn't have enough variety to it and becomes very predictable and easier for teams to guard when you get in these five, six, seven game playoff series because they just know exactly what he's going to do and he doesn't have many counters in the half court and that kind of makes his life more complicated once yeah. teams start to really pay attention and scheme against him. So that's number one. Well, I hold understand on one sec, that though. you I, are I, a little bit more skeptical. But. No, I agree to, to a point on that. That's definitely been an issue in the past. That's exactly what cost them the Spurs series because he would not shoot anything from the mid-range, and so he couldn't get the layups. He couldn't get the three-pointers. They were disciplined and not fouling him, and basically his brain broke. I thought he right. showed some pretty good counters against Utah. I mean, that floater is such a tough shot. He's turned that into a real weapon. Uh, he's gotten mm-hmm. better and better at driving into the paint, uh, you know, waiting till the precise moment the center comes to commit to him, and then lobbing to Capella and having Capella finish. I think that those viruses that were, you know, screwing with Capella, I think in game four, <laughs> that was a real thing. I mean, he did not look right at all. I don't know oh, how he got his boy. game back uh, in game five as quickly as he did, but he looked like a different player. And yep. it was a reminder that, Harden still needs help, you know? Well, listen, man. It's always funny with Harden. You know it's the playoffs when we're wondering whether some strange, obscure CDC virus is potentially affecting James Harden. Come on. Well, no. Here's the thing. Aside from, I think, legitimate questions about the diversity of his offense and how that translates to the postseason— 
there are also moments, and you have to have experienced this as well, there are moments when you watch him in these games and you're just like, you look so detached and disengaged and I don't understand how that's possible given the stage that you're on. And um, and there were a couple moments like that in this Jazz series where, granted, it's just the first round series against a Jazz team that everybody expected the Rockets to beat. But I looked up and I was like, I just don't get it. Like, I'm not rooting for Harden to fail. I'm really not. But um, but he has these these odd moments that you don't see from other superstars. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes and whether any of that matters against Golden State. Yeah, I mean, I hear it, but I also think he gets extra scrutiny because of the past. I, the Capella thing yeah, was a real issue. I mean, you have to grant that. The guy was not healthy. I don't know if you saw the pictures of his eyes going around, but they looked like completely red, screwed up. He just had no energy. That he was playing through that. Yeah, he, he probably shouldn't have been. Um, and I, again, kudos to him for bouncing back in game five because that was key. They needed everybody, you know, kind of all hands on deck there. Um, uh-huh. I think that, you know, Giannis had a game in Milwaukee this in the past series where he didn't look 100% locked in. He answered that with game four, uh, closed with the flourish. Steph's had a couple of games where, uh, you know, his energy is always really high, but his impact is not always there because of the way, you know, teams throw these defenses at him. So yep. again, you know, there's some issues there. No one is perfect and no one is bringing it, you know, locked in um, all the time. I also think Harden suffers a little bit from a perception tweak just because his usage is so high. We're so accustomed to him always having the ball, always doing everything, always running, you know, those same four or five looks that he runs just over and over again. So if he does, for whatever reason, mental or strategic or whatever else you want to call it, take a step back in big moments, it's really jarring because that's not what they look like 97% of the time, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, And it is true that he is graded on a different curve in part because of his past. But I, I would also say that the dominance we see all season long, which is sort of what you're talking about in terms of his usage and just everything he's able to do for that Rockets team, that does kind of raise the expectations for him because he's clearly someone who does belong in the conversation with some of the greatest shooting guards of all time. And so it's strange to come to that conclusion every year, every regular season, every March and April, we look up and say, oh my God, I cannot believe he's still doing this. And then get to the playoffs and be like, huh, doesn't really translate as much. Um, and I, I think there's a longer conversation to have about his offense and Look, maybe some of the blind spots in analytics um, it in general. It translates a lot, though. I mean, Utah is an excellent defense. Golden State, the team that's given him you know, all sorts of problems, has been you know, consistently the best defense year after year, especially in the playoffs. Uh, the Spurs, as I've talked about previously, uh, you know, they're you know, the best defensive coach probably in the league for the last 20 years is running them and they're disciplined and smart and they bring it night to night. So he's mm-hmm. facing really, really tough tests in a lot of these situations and he's winning more than his fair share, um, including this Utah series. Um, also on Chris's point though, uh, about, oh, he, he didn't realize he was starting 0 for 15 from the field. Trust me, he knew. Okay. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> this guy was chasing a triple double in the closing minutes of what was a game one. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's out there. He knows his numbers. Don't buy that story. Come on. Well, yeah, the sideline reporter there was in a tough spot, but I mean, <laughs> James Harden was basically just lying to all of us right there, uh, lying through his teeth more power to him. I don't really know what I would say in that spot, but um, as far as the other side of this matchup, because honestly, I was excited to come on here today 
and predict the Warriors to go out and beat the Rockets in five games. In my heart, I want to pick a Warriors sweep. And lo and behold, they go out and lose to the Clippers Wednesday night, prolonging that series, casting all kinds of doubt on what's going on with that team. We already had that conversation last week. By the way, I was right when I said that the team is still kind of screwed up. But um, I don't know. I mean, I want to start here, actually. That Clippers team is amazing. And I've watched them against the Warriors, and I now regret not enjoying them more during the regular season. I'm jealous of you living in Los Angeles and getting to watch, like, 500% 500% more Montrez Harrell than I did this season. Yeah, no, um, it, it shows. I mean, I told you about this team in the preseason. And, you know, sure enough, in the playoffs, you decide to stay up a little bit later, watch the best show. <laughs> you know, good, wholesome, clean family fun, just like I told you, right? They've been awesome, man. And like Montrez, he just goes so hard. Some of the finishes he's able to come up with are just mind-boggling. Like, sometimes he's hanging in the air, and I'm worried that he's going to, like, break his back on a fall because he just throws his body all over the floor, and then he's able to finish. I I don't know what he's shooting in this series. It's got to be, like, 80%. It's kind of out of this world. And then on top of that, you got... Small ball five Gallinari flopping around out there and giving teams problems. That's something that they've been doing all year. And then Lou Williams taking over at the end of that game and upstaging the Hamptons five, possibly the greatest collection of talent the NBA has ever seen. And Lou Will is just kind of like carving them up in the mid range. It's just out of control. I love this team. No, they've they've really brought it in this series. They've completely exceeded my expectations. They've beaten Golden State uh, in Golden State at Oracle Arena more times in this series than Golden State's lost home games in the last two playoffs combined against every team. That's what that just tells you <laughs> how ridiculous they're playing. Um, I'm still not convinced that this Warriors team is like in serious trouble or broken or whatever phrase that you were trying to you know tell us uh, last uh-huh. week. But I do think that much like Harden they're being graded on a crazy curve. When you go 16 and one, you know, through the playoffs, like they did, uh, when, you know, you sweep through last year's finals, every loss, you know, winds up looking, you know, it's like, what's going on? What's possibly going wrong? You know, you, you should have been 99% chance to win that, you know, close that game in game five. And, uh, it's mm-hmm. not great that they're saying, you know, openly admitting that they were looking ahead to the second round. You know, that's a little bit, uh, you know, curious and, uh, you know, not what you want in terms of, uh, you know, complacency uh, and mentality from your uh, team. Like Clay Thompson just basically said that flat out. And then Kerr yeah. was so touchy. Uh, when I don't know if you saw that clip where the guy asked him, hey, basically, what's your team's identity this year? And it wasn't the perfect question, but he was just kind of trying to get at the idea of like, this team's been pretty inconsistent. You know, there's been a lot of moments where uh, there's been unexplainable efforts, including the defensive performance in Game Five, where they just did not stop the Clippers at all at any point of that game. They just wanted to yeah. get, get into a shootout, and uh, you know that's not how you win playoff games, right? And Kerr's, well, can I, yeah, can Kerr- I play the clip here actually? Because Ple- you you tweeted it, BG Studios holding us down every night of the playoffs. Um, so here we go. Here's Kerr talking about the Warriors' identity. What's the identity of our club? Uh, back-to-back champions. Um, I don't know. Like we're really good. I mean, we're hanging banners. You know, what's our identity? We play fast. We play defense. Um, 
I don't know. We could maybe we should do an instructional video later, and we'll send it to you. So there's Kerr. Woof. My reaction to that was that Steve doth protest a little too much um, because I think it's a fair question when you talk about this Warriors team and this Warriors season. Like the identity has been a little strange. I understand why he can't sit up there and answer it honestly, but to come back the way he did, it's it seems like kind of like a desperate attempt to remind his team who they are. I don't know. What, what was your reaction? I don't know if it was desperate, but it was telling that he wanted to go back to what they've done in the past before he wanted to explain who they were this season, right? Like, I think he told right. on himself a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, some of that is just that they do have a mental edge over everybody. I and mean, they still clearly in their hearts believe that they're essentially invincible. Otherwise, they would be playing with a lot more ferocity than they showed uh, in, in both game two uh, and game five. And I think we've seen this team battle you know, complacency issues prior to Durant's arrival, uh, since Durant's arrival. And I do think that they've just made life more difficult for themselves uh, throughout this season than it needs to mm -hmm. be. And that is concerning. And, you know, Kerr kind of also fell on the sword a little bit earlier in that press conference where he was saying, hey, we just didn't come out ready to go. And that is very troublesome. It's like, come on, you know, you don't want the off days. You don't want it, uh, to be able to spend the extra time preparing for the Houston Rockets. Uh, I remember that team in 2016 when Durant first got there. There was no messing around to anything that they did, right? It's like they go to San Antonio, they get up 3-0. They easily could have just punted that game and gone for the gentleman's sweep. What do they do? They come out and embarrass the Spurs in game four and run them off the court. And, you know, the fans are practically ready to send Manu Ginobili into retirement on the spot because of it, right? So, I don't know. It, there's a clear difference in mentality between this version's Warriors and the past two versions of the Warriors that we've seen. I guess my question is, will it matter? And I'm still, uh, you know, fairly comfortable. I guess I side with Steph Curry on this one. He said there's no panic. Um, you know, and I guess if they lose game six, there's going to be a little bit of panic because they're going to be staring <laughs> at the end of the season. And another 3-1, uh, you know, another round of 3-1 jokes. I'm just not sure yeah. I'm there yet. Yeah, I mean, my reaction to the to the Kerr thing more than anything else is I think it's interesting because you have to know that that game pissed him off to no end. I mean, he was pissed off going into the half. He came out in the third quarter and gave that interview and said, at least we were trying in, in this third quarter. I mean, they were still losing at that point. But you have to know that th these games drive him crazy. And yet I think... That team is in a fragile enough place where he understands that it's not time to criticize the effort. And he's basically just kind of searching and hoping that he can remind them that, like, everything is all good and just come out and play hard and we're going to beat the every team in the league. Um, and I think that's where they are, or at least that's where Kerr is. Today at practice, he... <laughs> Draymond Green would not turn the music down, and the, there was a clip floating around the internet of Kerr dealing with that issue while he was trying to talk to reporters, and there was one sort of like sequence in there, like three or four seconds, where you see Kerr give the reporters just the most exhausted look as he tries to deal with this team, and I think that's where they've been all season. It's not fair to pin all of it on KD. Some of that is just, it comes with the territory with a team that's been to the finals. This will be five years in a row this spring. And there's a lot of that fatigue that is going to factor into how they play. And I do think a lot of it is also, 
a complete absence of fear. I mean, Draymond Green came out of halftime down 10 in a playoff game and spent the first three minutes of the second half antagonizing the refs and basically doing everything he could to get himself thrown out of the game. So there was clearly no urgency from them last night, even as they were losing to the Clippers. And I think we're just going to keep kind of living this cycle with the Warriors where they're going to look broken and screwed up, come back, win by 20 or 30, look amazing again, and then a week or two down the line, we're going to have the exact same conversation where we look around and say, like, does anyone on this team actually give a shit? And I think the answer is complicated. Well, I mean, part of it is that Kerr has been like the cool teacher for years. You know, he's the guy who like brings in the television monitor so you can watch a, you know, an educational film on Friday and lets you out to recess early. He's been that guy for a really long time, like searching for the joy. And eventually, I mean, it's human nature to just take advantage of that, right? I mean, the music being too loud might just be a small, like, you know, symptom of of what's going on. But like, you know, if you're in this a very player-friendly kind of loosey-goosey environment for year after year after year, and you know you're better than everybody else, uh, that can go to the wrong side of like the, the healthy uh, border, you know, pretty quickly. The other thing I'd yeah. say is, my last thought, it's time for Steph Curry to save this, right? I mean, he stepped forward earlier in the season uh, when Katie and Draymond were kind of going at each other. He kind of mended the fences. He was the one who sort of put everything back in order. That's his job. I thought his message after game five was excellent in terms of, look, we've been resilient. We've talked about that for years. We're going to be resilient on Friday. And I understand he's dealing with traps, you know, the, the weird top locking thing where they're just doing everything they can to prevent him from being able to get going. Uh, uh-huh. He shot the ball really, really well in game five. And I think, you know, it's time for him to step up even further, right? Bring this one home, you know, put to, to, put to bed this round of the drama because there's going to be more rounds of drama as they go deeper into the playoffs. And, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's time for Steph to make a statement here in game six. Yeah. Um, and he has not been very good for most of this series. He may, I haven't seen his specific numbers, but watching these games, he's not having the type of impact that he generally does. And that's a problem because the Warriors become mortal when Steph is mortal. Um, and Durant was great on in game five or whatever. Like he had 45 points. He looked like the best player on the floor, maybe the best player in the league. But when Durant is leading them, they're not nearly as invincible, overwhelming as they are when Steph Curry is the guy who's kind of the catalyst for everything. So that's on Steph as much as anybody else. Um, Yeah, And one thing Steph said, you know, towards the end of his comment was like, look, things are different this year. This is a different challenge. And one of the things he mentioned was the lineups that they're facing, and they went to the death lineup late, right? The Hamptons 5 group, you mentioned that. And as uh, you pointed out, Lou Williams basically took them apart, you know, single-handedly down the stretch. That is not something that we've seen happen very often in the playoffs with this group, especially since they added Kevin Durant. I mean, that has been reliably like, okay, let's break the glass. It's an emergency, and these guys will, will solve things. And they just couldn't get stops with that group. And I think that uh, it's evidence of a little bit of evolution, right? I mean, the Clippers line up with Trez and, and, you know, as the center and then everybody else being spread out is a much more natural matchup for that small ball Warriors lineup than a lot mm-hmm. of the other lineups that might have been available to teams three or four years ago, right? So I do think that there's a, a level of strategic X's and O's kind of catching up, you know, going on here where, uh, you know, teams can 
they're not completely blindsided when Golden State goes to that small ball lineup and completely yeah. blitzed off the court like they maybe were in years past. And that's an adjustment because I think that those five guys are cocky primarily because they think they're the best five-man group in the entire league, maybe in the entire history of the sport, and nobody can stop them. And they always feel like that's the ace in the hole, like that's in the, their back pocket. They can break it out. And they saw in right. game five, it didn't work out that way. Yeah, well, and two parting thoughts from me. Number one, God, I love watching Lou Williams score in the half court and some of the shots he's able to get. He's just so crafty, man. And like when I talk about Harden and some of the blind spots in the analytics movement, I'm talking specifically about some of the shots that Lou Williams was hitting down the stretch last night. And at the end of games, those mid-range jumpers that are deemed inefficient and borderline blasphemous during the regular season are really, really valuable in these big moments in the playoffs. And C.J. McCollum hit a big mid-range shot to put the Blazers in position against the Thunder in the final minute as well. And so I do think that that's kind of its own conversation, but something that I really enjoy about Lou Williams is here's a guy who's one of the five most inefficient players in the league, but... The skills he has are incredibly important um, in, in some of the most important games any basketball team can play. And then, additionally, and the whole reason I played that Kerr clip, Daryl Morey retweeted that from BG Studios late Thursday night or late Wednesday Lord, night. Lots Sorry, of, Lots of fans, lots of aficionados in and outside the league, Andrew. What can I say? <laughs> well, so what do we make of that? Is he saying, yeah, the Warriors are about banners and are playing defense? Or is this is a subtle dig? Is he saying the Warriors are more vulnerable than anyone realizes and we should pay attention to Kerr's kind of desperate plea to remind them who they are and remind all of us? I mean, what... What was your reaction? Well, a couple things. First of all, I appreciate the retweets in all seriousness. Uh, he's got a lot of juice, Andrew. Sometimes if people give you a retweet, you'll notice your follower count jump. You know, Daryl's got that uh -huh. juice. He actually retweeted two different clips. One of them was like a pro Clippers uh, clip, and then the other one was Kerr talking about the whole banners and things, right? So to me, it was... Uh, it was trolling a little bit, almost as if he was trying to, you know, build up the the intensity of this matchup, you know, like build up the pressure uh, on Golden State a little bit. But look, you can't read into a retweet too far, can you? <laughs> well, no, but it did make me excited for Rockets Warriors. I really have no idea where that series is going to go. I think I'm going to go into it pretty confident that the Warriors handled their business quicker than anyone expects and and it could go four or five games I've got, um, I've got one question for you just big picture on that series is it possible that both these teams are meaningfully worse than they were last year and if so are we headed for a letdown I don't know see I don't think that the Rockets are meaningfully worse unless you go into that series knowing that you're not going to get the best James Harden whereas last year we had questions about whether he was going to be able to take the next step and carry them. And after this Jazz series, like there is real reason to worry about what Harden you're going to be getting in that series. But I think like around the edges, I don't know. I actually like Daniel House a little bit more than Trevor Ariza in that series. And I think that P.J. Tucker has been great for them. Austin Rivers is valuable and, and will help them in ways that they didn't have last year. And so, okay. I don't know. I, I'm with you on a lot of that, but now you lost me though, because last year at 1-7... Uh, we, we're saying the Warriors are maybe a little bit more fritzy than they were last year. 
and you're saying yeah. the Rockets are better. So how does that equate to Warriors in five? Well, I'm saying the Rockets are better. I still have real questions about Harden. Chris Paul is healthy, though, and, and has looked pretty great over the last month, and, and particularly in some of these big moments against Utah. Like He's kind of getting wherever he wants to go on the floor, which is a big win. So I, it, the reason I'm picking the Warriors is because they're just more talented, and they would have won in five games last year had Andre Iguodala not gotten hurt. and um, that. So I think their health is also going to be a factor. As long as everybody is out there, they're just better across the board. and Really, really tough to beat. Here's another theory for you. Is it possible that the Warriors got caught up in liking the Clippers' style of play and heart so much that they didn't really have uh, the heart to just bury them? Whereas we know that they really dislike the Rockets, right? I mean... <laughs> That's what I was going to say. That, the last point Do I they have crank it up that- just to spite them? I think there's spite, contempt, um, but also more respect for the Rockets than there is for the Clippers. And you look at, like, you talked about the unfair standard the Warriors are held to. I'm not expecting them to go out and, like, blow the doors off of every team they play and every game they play this playoffs. But the level of kind of... I don't know. You just look at them and you're like, do you guys actually care? Does it, is this the playoffs to you? Do, do you only count finals games as the playoffs? Like what's going on and what's going through your head? Yeah, that's the tough Whereas time think, though. It's not always like that. You know, there are moments where they just cruise, you know, and they just smack yeah. everybody. And that, that's what's got to be so frustrating to occur. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but long story short, I think that once you get to the Houston series, if they get there, uh they if they get there look the clippers could shock the world and boy oh boy if it's game seven i don't even know what i'm gonna do sunday like that's gonna be just uh i might have to fly to oakland so i can buy a montrez herald jersey and be courtside but um if it does if they do make it to the rocket series they're going to be locked in, and I think that they will handle their business fairly quickly. So, but hey, I was wrong last year. Uh, I want to go back to one thing you were talking about, the value of the mid-range shot. I was talking to a shooting coach this week and you know, just sort of discussing the value of the deep three-pointers because that was such a big talking point around Dame's shot. You know, Is it a good shot? Is it a bad shot? And it's been a huge issue in this Warriors series too because the Clippers have so overcommitted to taking away the three-pointer from Steph. And it's actually an issue in the Rockets series too given how Utah was trying to play behind Harden and you know take away his step back and uh, you know forcing teams to recalibrate what they view as high-priority shots. Um, yep. The mid-range shots have become so open and you've been and now you can step into them a lot of times without uh, contests um, that – the value proposition has definitely changed. There's no question about it. And so, you're, you know, you were kind of like cherry picking, hey, Lou Williams, that's a good shot for him. Or CJ McCollum, he hits a big one. I think, you know, more broadly speaking, uh, the level of intensity that these teams in the playoffs are applying with their defenses to taking away the three-pointers has definitely changed that equation because the number of uncontested three-pointers that you're able to generate uh, these days, mm-hmm. it's much lower unless you're playing against a team that has you know a bad defense. Uh, at the yeah. highest level of the sport, the threes are, are being contested so much more effectively than they were three or four years ago that you know that old logic about no mid-range whatsoever is out the books. Now, does that mean you want to have Carmelo Anthony you know, jacking up turnaround 18-footers with his, a hand in his face? Of course not. But if you've got a good shooting 
player, whether it's a Kevin Durant who's just been lethal from the mid-range, whether it's Steph Curry, uh, you know, being able to get loose and, and fire up a shot for maybe the you know the free throw line extended where he yeah. might not have taken that shot a few years ago. Those are much better shots, relatively speaking, uh, than the perception will lead you to believe. Yeah, and that's sort of what I'm alluding to is, number one, all these threes are more contested in the playoffs, and, and that's why everyone's percentages drop. And then also, I mean, if you're going to settle for a contested shot, which is oftentimes what these superstars have to do, it's easier to hit a contested look from 17 feet than it is from 25 feet. And that's the calculus that is not necessarily accounted for when you look across the league and say, what's the most valuable shot on the court? Well, at the end of games, like the ability to get a clean look in the mid-range can be super, super valuable. So... Um, we will see. That's a conversation that will continue throughout the rest of the playoffs because it's something that has interested me over the last month or two. But first, Ben, we need to move on because today's show is brought to us by Robinhood. And Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. Ben, tell me a little bit more about Robinhood. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 Most Popular... With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Open Floor a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at floor.robinhood.com. That's floor.robinhood.com floor.robinhood.com. All right, let's get back into it and let's revisit that Blazers game for a minute here. Senator Batman says, on the last podcast, Andrew mentioned that Dame might be having a Dirk moment. I said to Ben on Instagram that it seemed like he was having it, but then I qualified myself. Well, screw moderation. If you don't like Dame Lillard, you don't like basketball. And if Dame plays like that for the Blazers, we can beat anyone. So give me some additional thoughts on that game five in Portland. One of the coolest things I have seen in several years covering the NBA. Well, let me just uh, pour some cold water on on some of this, and then we can talk about Dame. <laughs> you know, the idea yeah. that beating these Oklahoma City Thunder means that you can beat everybody. I mean, it, a lot of those games in this series were still really close. I thought Billy Donovan got absolutely worked by Terry Stotts. And look, Stotts didn't have a lot of answers last year. I think Stotts deserves a ton of credit in this series. If you look at what they were trying to accomplish you know, sucker Westbrook into trying to beat you and going one-on-one and making mistakes, Um, you know, keep Canner on the court if at all possible because the other options aren't very good. Don't get, uh, you know, blasted in pick-and-roll defense. Uh, You know, protect the the backboard and, and the glass from a guy like Steven Adams. Force Oklahoma City's weak links to try to beat you and, you know, try to contain Paul George as as well as possible. 
they checked uh-huh. every single thing off that list you know that, that you would try to do and if you flip it did Billy Donovan accomplish basically any of his goals in this series? Were they able to exploit Enos Cantor? Did they have any answer at any point for Damian Lillard? Did they handle that late game defense properly? I can tell you when even Marcus Morris is going on thousand word rants about how poor your defensive strategy was against Damian Lillard in the closing minutes of game five, that means you screwed the whole thing up. Uh, to me, their offense was never really that great um, you know, throughout the course of the series. And so that's why I kind of point to the coaching aspect there. Other teams are going to be able to accomplish some of those goals that I mentioned far more effectively than the Oklahoma City Thunder do. Uh, I mean, just take Golden State, for example. Are they going to be able to uh, do a better job scheming Lillard out of the game with their more versatile defenses, with their better pick and roll defenders? Uh, There's no question about it. Are they going to be able to punish Cantor? Uh, much more effectively than the Thunder did. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they've they've done that to Portland's bigs, you know, in past series as well. Guys who couldn't shoot uh, look just really, really ineffective in the playoffs. So let's pump the brakes there. Now, all of that out of the way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Lillard, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of an icon or a legend status, I was at that game in 2014 when he hit that shot. I cannot believe he hit a shot that was definitely better in basically all respects than that shot that he hit in 2014. I mean, the degree of difficulty to go from, you know, a catch and shoot three pointer from 25 feet, which is what he hit in 2014 to an off the dribble sidestep, you know, that pound dribble shot with a, a good contest from Paul George from 37 feet with total confidence in the game on the line after playing 45 minutes of regulation is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, that the shot in 2014 was one of the best basketball moments I've ever experienced. Um, I think yeah. you can make a real strong case, the same kind of logic you were using earlier that maybe a shot like Kyrie's in the 2016 finals is actually a better shot because the stakes are so much higher, the deeper you go in the playoffs, but that Lillard for just a pure sporting moment, uh, was way, way, way high on the scale. And the de- the degree of difficulty part is really what, uh, impressed me more than anything he made it look like a natural shot because he's been working at it, uh, because he mm-hmm. trusts himself, because he has the positive mentality, uh, because he's hit them in the past, uh, because it's part of his routine. And the number of guys in NBA history to be able to take and make that shot in that moment is two people. Uh, it's Steph Curry <laughs> and it's Damian Lillard. Nobody else could well, do it. Well, wait, 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 wait. I think LeBron could make that. He's had a couple moments where he's bombed from 30 feet before. Gilbert Arenas is another name that I would throw out there. Um, oh, come it's on. It's my duty as a Wizards fan. Oh, look, Gilbert's hit shots like that. But From 37 no question, at the buzzer to win a series? I believe he hit from about 35 to push the Wizards Cavs series to overtime in one of the most heartbreaking games of my lifetime because the Wizards then lost on missed Gilbert Arenas free throws and a Damon Jones three. Literally the worst basketball game of my life, actually, that I've ever been to. But um, but he hit the shot. So Can, I, I put Gilbert in that category. I would, maybe I would parse well. it a little bit, though, because when these guys get back to that range, it doesn't look as natural as that Dame shot, right? Like... Yeah, especially with LeBron. I mean, there's there's almost like a hoisting factor when he goes back that far or even anybody mm-hmm. from like prior to the last five years. 
when you're going back that deeply, like there was a clip circulating of Paul George, you know, taking and making a really deep three pointer uh, over the last 24 hours as tr- trying to like evidence of him being hypocritical for saying Dames was a bad shot, right? It was still yeah. kind of like a hoist. I mean, the the way that Lillard and Curry shoot him, it's so it's like built into their routine, right? I mean, they've got it calibrated where they're just they know exactly how much extra loft they want to put on it. They can do it with a rhythm dribble. They can do it off the dribble with a defender, you know, flanked all over them. It almost doesn't matter. That to yep. me really feels like a new phenomenon. I mean, it, maybe it's not like a completely it is new, a new phenomenon. Maybe it's like, are you kidding me? It's not like a new recipe. Like guys have hit some, uh, you know, good shots before, but they've got some ingredients that nobody else was using as recently as like three or four years ago. Well, and the difference being that Lillard is practicing that shot now and wasn't three or four years ago or five years ago. And I, I think everybody recognizes now, number one, certain guys can take and make those shots. Number two, the more reliable they become from that distance, the more valuable that is for the entire offense. I mean, that opens up a ton of shit for the Blazers, and that's why he's been doing it all year, Logo Lillard. I mean, this is like a real thing that is still, in my mind, kind of a bad shot. Like, I didn't see Paul George in the postgame and say, wow, you're an idiot. You are ignoring the percentages, this and that. Like... To me, that's still a shot you're willing to concede with the game on the line. And when people want to point to percentages, most of those shots that Lillard has taken and made have been unguarded because teams kind of leave him alone out there 35 feet from the hoop. This one was contested. And I think if Paul George made a mistake, his mistake was not crowding Lillard maybe a second or a second and a half before he did because he allowed Lillard to get in rhythm. And that made him even more dangerous from that spot. But I mean, at the end of the day, part of what made that shot so incredible is that it was an insane shot to take. I loved him for that. And yeah, no, I'm uh, with and- you, but I, I agree. I think the defense was worse than the shot because uh, yeah. he he is comfortable from that range, right? You don't want the best player on the opposing team to take a shot that he is comfortable with, with the game on the line, especially if that guy already has 47 points, right? So if you're looking at, and this isn't just a Paul George problem, you know, if you could rerun the simulation, would you rather have Damian pass the ball to like Mo Harkless with a second and a half left and give up an open three to him on the wing? Would you rather have Dame try to force up a contested shot um, off the dribble where he doesn't have the clean look? Like there is a lot of things that you would rather give up in that situation than the shot that they actually wound up giving up. And that's just one of these cases where Paul George is right that that was a bad shot until two years ago. That is not a bad shot anymore, okay? Now, it might not be a good shot. There are definitely better shots, but he needs to break through that mentality as a a very skilled and smart and high-level defensive player. And it was a persistent problem for them all series long. And actually, Westbrook was a bigger... um, you know, uh, liability in that regard than George, because he was just not picking up Lillard high enough throughout the series. And he was just walking into shots that he could make. Um, but yeah. these guys have to adjust and it's not just the players, it's the coaching staff. But, uh, to me, they botched that defensive possession. He should have been closer. Like you mentioned, they probably should have help, uh, sent help when the clock got underneath three seconds. They should not have allowed their season to, uh, to go down as it did. Yeah, there's no question about it. And for Lillard in that moment, as I wrote uh, on Thursday morning, like the coolest part about it is he is 40 feet away, 
pull up contested and the second it left his hands i was positive it was going in and i think that's probably true of just about anyone who had watched the entire series watched that entire game it's just like this was Lillard's moment, and um, it's part of what makes him so incredible is he's been able to kind of cultivate this legend around himself and his game and what he can do for the Blazers. And it's just been really cool to watch it finally pay off with a performance like that. And, um, I mean, we other people have talked about it, but everything the Blazers have gone through over the past few years has been difficult enough such that other teams would have kind of fallen apart. And the fact that the Blazers haven't is a credit to everybody, but it's particularly a credit to Lillard. And like I talked to Nurkic earlier this season, and I was blown away by how effusive Nurkic was when I asked him about Dame. And um, and all the Blazers talk about Lillard that way. And it, it's just really cool to see someone who's like, number one, so great with kind of all the intangibles that people prize in franchise players but he's also not a dork either and he's also like one of the coolest players in the nba and sunned uh westbrook in the most humiliating way possible so it's he's he might be the coolest superstar in the league it's it's pretty wild no it was a storybook moment let's get to this email from jacob because he's coming at your throat andrew Okay, so Jacob says, Do you remember the scene in The Naked Gun where a guy crashes his car into a gas tanker, which then crashes into a ballistic missile, which crashes into a fireworks factory, and as explosives and fireworks light up the sky, Lieutenant Frank Drebin urges a crowd of spectators to please disperse because there's nothing to see here. That's what I thought of when I saw Andrew Sharp's tweets heaping generic praise on Russell Westbrook and saying that this is about Lillard, not Russ, and that of all the nights to crush Westbrook, this isn't one of them. Um, Ben, I don't know. Do you want to start here or should I just respond? No, make your case. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to make some movie analogies, but I didn't totally agree with you. But go ahead, make your case. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I responded to Jacob individually, and we had a nice exchange after this. I appreciate any sort of naked gun analogy emailers want to make. And as far as the Westbrook thing, it did kind of drive me crazy, uh, to be honest with you. After that game five, after Lillard has basically like an out-of-body experience, and then everybody, as soon as the buzzer sounds, starts pulling up Westbrook's numbers and saying... Here we go again. This guy can never win. What a fraud, et cetera, et cetera. This is why Kevin Durant left. And to me, all of those criticisms are fair, and yet they seemed like wildly misplaced on the heels of that Game 5 because I came into Game 5 expecting the Thunder to fold, expecting Russ to be the absolute worst version of himself, and neither one of those things happened. The Thunder played their asses off, fought back when they were down. I believe it was 8 or 10 in the third quarter, and the game looked over, and then they just refused to disappear. And Westbrook, his shooting numbers were not great. He missed a lot of layups around the rim. His shot selection was actually really impressive. Like, he wasn't taking the bad threes. He wasn't getting into the pissing contest with Lillard, and he was keeping his teammates involved and keeping his team in the game And I think the lesson from this series 
is that Westbrook isn't the same player. And a lot of that shows up in those finishes around the rim. He doesn't have that explosion anymore, um, or quite as much explosion. He's still like an absolute freak of nature. But that little drop-off has really hurt him. And his jumper is broken. And his future is uncertain. But given all those limitations, all of which were known coming into Game 5, I thought Westbrook went out and had a really dignified, proud, impressive performance in that game where he played his ass off and made the Thunder, or sorry, made the Blazers be incredible to get that win. And they really had to fight, and Lillard had to play the game of his career to get that win. And um, so I don't know. I, I didn't come away from that game being like, Oh man, Westbrook, we got to talk about what a fucking clown this guy is. It's like it seems like everybody else was on that page and so it drive it drove me a little crazy. Well, the narrative was definitely pre-written. You know, it was clear that Westbrook was going to be taking the abuse. I mean, we had already talked about it. Everybody had already talked about it. I mean, that's how it was going to go down if they lost and um so that part didn't really surprise me. I understand what you're saying right. a little bit in terms of his game five effort, but you know, I don't think you ever show this leeway to a guy like James Harden. I mean, 11 for 31. And I think also there was some real faltering moments late. Like I tweeted this, but you know, they go on a 13 to two run. The Blazers do in the final, basically mm-hmm. three minutes of the game and Oklahoma city's final eight possessions. And this has been the time they've always struggled dating back to even the Kevin Durant era, right? It's that late game stuff where, you know, it's my turn, your turn. They don't get the good shots. Uh, and they succumb yeah. to their worst tendencies. I mean, their final eight possessions is Schroeder misses a three, Westbrook misses a two, George chokes two free throws, Westbrook gets called for a charge, uh, Grant misses a two, George commits a turnover, George actually made a mid-range two, and then Westbrook missed the layup to kind of set up uh, you know, Damian's three-pointer. That's just not yeah. good enough, man. Like, that's just not. It's, even for a guy, if we're saying, look— you're no longer a top 10 player. Maybe now you're a top, you know, 15 to 20 range player, you know, in the case uh-huh. of Westbrook, you still have to do better than that or you're going to get criticized. And I think if they had still lost the same way, Lillard still hits the game-winning three-pointer, but Oklahoma City was just a little bit more stable down the stretch, I would be more inclined to agree with your interpretation of events. But I think that uh-huh. it was a case of some really bad ghosts coming back to bite them at the worst possible time. And some of the fundamental criticisms of Westbrook, whether it's you know self-control with the turnover uh, and the missed layup uh, yeah. and some of the other I, things I late in that it. game. I, that's but that's look, wrong, but honestly. A- Andrew, if Harden he, had had that same stretch in the final three minutes, you would just be crushing him. You'd be killing him, man. You would. You know that. Well, I don't know if that's true because Westbrook willed them into the game and Harden, I think, has had a lot of moments where he's not exerting that kind of influence on games in the playoffs. And that's the whole problem where you kind of watch him and you're like, is he here? Where's his head at? Whereas Westbrook was locked in the entire night and playing the right way, playing with uh, a purpose or purpose or whatever you want. He was not playing. There was no way he was playing he, with he a was. purpose. No. Yes, he was. He was not. And look, he wasn't for most of the series and was getting involved in a lot of kind of like going back and forth with Lillard and not being able to match him shot for shot because he can't shoot anymore. And it well, was just a big it was pretty ugly and, I mean, and uncomfortable a, to watch. Isn't that a big caveat, though? I mean, he missed 20 shots. Like, it's still a closeout game. He missed 20 shots. Well, no, 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 no. No, he didn't miss 20 jump shots. He missed a lot of chippies around the rim because he's not the same player anymore. But he wasn't maniac Westbrook. This was not... 
game six against Utah where he goes down and shoots like 15 of 45. This was a different player, and people just had already made up their mind that they were going to crush Westbrook. No, I agree with you that it was predetermined. There's no question about it. I just think that he still failed in some of the same ways we've seen before. It wasn't to the same degree, but the same issues... Uh, maybe they're exacerbated it's in one direction versus the other, but he this, the same fundamental flaws, the lack of self-control, the lack of playing with a purpose, and the lack of a jump mm. shot all bit him in I game five. I don't agree. I really don't agree because I think that a lot of his fundamental flaws um, can be put into two categories. One, there are some fundamental limits in his game that complicate his fit in the modern NBA, and I think that's what we saw in Game Five because those limits were have been exacerbated as his game has okay, deteriorated. Okay, so let me ask you this: How come they only had two points in the final three minutes? If he's playing with a purpose and he's he's got everything under control, he's a changed player. How do you explain the end game? Well, and that leads me to my second category, where he's not always um, approaching the game the right way, and you absolutely can question his his mentality in some of these games but the mentality in this game was completely fine and when you look at the final three minutes like look man he had a charge call go against the thunder that was a 50 50 call and it would have been a three-point play that would have sealed the game for okc and it was an incredible finish from westbrook and like that it, it was vintage westbrook so I'm not really going to kill him for those final three minutes. He had played the entire second half. The same was true of Paul George. Everybody was running out of gas. And and so that's the way it goes sometimes. It's hard to win on the road in the playoffs. And the Thunder were right there and lost on like literally one of the most iconic shots we've seen in the last 15 years. So it just, it all kind of struck me as odd. I think all the Westbrook criticism is fair, but that was a, a pretty gutsy performance from him that honestly kind of caught me off guard as someone who's watched the the last 10 years of his career. It was definitely more impressive than I expected. It was more impressive than he got credit for. I'm not totally sold it was as impressive as you're telling us it was, but I also agree that Paul George deserved more uh, more blame uh, or more Mm -hmm. uh, of the uh, attacks than he got because that the conversation around Paul George it all became this idea of oh you're a poor sport you know you why are you saying that it's a bad shot you know why is that you know it's so salty it's undignified and all of that whereas he did miss two huge free throws yeah he missed another shot late he he had the defensive breakdown uh, on the final possession I mean there was definitely some things you could point to him and say look you just did not raise your game if you're going to be a top three or four MVP candidate as people were trying to uh, you know paint him earlier this season you've got to be better in the big moments than that and I think if he was had a higher profile again if he was Harden if he was Durant and the end game plays out that way those guys are taking a lot more heat than he did yeah there's no question about it and I wish Paul George we just it's harder to have that Paul George conversation because we don't know how injured he was and he did play great for the first three and a half quarters and um i don't know i'm i'm glad that we don't have to talk about the thunder anymore because they're just kind of depressing um and i i'm not a westbrook stan that was the other thing that bothered me is like trying to be a little nuanced about his performance in game five led to all kinds of people being like oh here we go another westbrook stan defending him it's like nah man like 
I understand Westbrook is like flawed, probably fatally so, as far as what he's going to do for the rest of his career. But that was also kind of a cool, proud moment in Game 5 that I was, yeah, it was weirdly a, impressed by. 2017 MVP performance, no question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, just kidding. All right, let's keep it moving. Um, but first, we have a quick ad here. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com. Mattressfirm.com for the President's Day sale. A couple more questions here, Ben. The first is a Twitter comment from friend of the program, Ben Thompson, who says, Boston scored 84, 99, 104, and 110 points in the first round of the playoffs, and Andrew Sharp can't stop going on and on about what an offensive juggernaut they are, which is a very fair criticism. I, I did not mean to make the Celtics sound like the Warriors on the last podcast, so if anyone came away with that impression uh please forgive me what i meant when i talked about tatum is that if jason tatum is playing well which for him means attacking the rim and hitting threes uh the celtics are going to have enough offense to be really really hard to beat because the defense is full of long switchable athletes horford who's excellent if he's healthy and they are just tough to match up with in the playoffs we saw it last year too the question is going to be whether they can score enough to beat teams. And I think Tatum playing well and being the guy he was supposed to be at the start of the season will kind of make them that much harder to deal with because that, that gives them the offense they need. So do you have any additional Bucks celtics thoughts? Just that I'm kind of dreading this series because no matter how it goes, uh, I think I'm going to be sick of whatever your Celtics take are. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we've talked about this team so much and you're so far out there that like if the Celtics do win, you're going to be pounding your chest so much. It's just going to be, you know, like just overbearing. I'm not going to be able to take it. If they lose, I can already see the excuses just mounting a mile high about everybody no, let down Kyrie. No, there's no excuses. Look, you know, here it if comes. If they lose, and then the worst part the on thing. top of it, though, and I'll let you speak in a second. The worst <laughs> part on top of it is either way, if they do lose, you're going to hop right back on the Giannis bandwagon and pretend you never liked the Celtics in the first place. All of it just disgusts me, Andrew. All of it. Oh, boy. Listen, listen, listen. Giannis is amazing. I'm not off the Giannis bandwagon. I reserve the right to get right back on the bandwagon when the Bucks win this series. I can't wait to see Milwaukee in the spring. It would be awesome. And um, whichever one of these teams comes out of it, I'm I'm going to be very excited to watch through the rest of the playoffs. Just a grease pig marking his territory in the sky. I believe in both of them. I believe in both sides of this matchup. That's why it's going to be probably the best series of the entire playoffs. Let me give you a couple more reasons why I am picking Boston. Okay. Is that cool? I'm ready. Actually, I wanted to hear this because we didn't really dive that deep on the last pod. So bring it on. Okay. So number one... I think that the Celtics can spread the Bucks out and give them problems. And so many Bucks fans responded to what we said earlier in the week by coming to me and saying, well, Milwaukee has the number one defense in the league. But to that, I have two responses. Number one, 
Atlanta under Budenholzer had the number one defense in a couple of those years and would go into the playoffs and the defense wouldn't translate. So I'm not as worried. I understand the Bucks play a, a different scheme than what Bud was doing in Atlanta, but I think part of it is the lack of adjustments from Bud in a playoff setting. And then on the Celtics side, Boston has the type of pieces that can exploit the Milwaukee weaknesses. And I think that's why all year long, Bucks fans have looked at the Celtics and said, all right, so that's our biggest threat. And, um, and that's, that's, that's going to be a factor, I think, over the next few weeks. Yeah, I think that it really comes down to Lopez because his impact was just insane in the first round series. I mean, they just tortured poor Andre Drummond. I mean, I, you know, I felt really bad for him by the end of the series. Plus minus numbers were just out of control. Uh, but I believe the Celtics outplayed uh, the Bucks when Lopez was on the court during the regular season. Mm-hmm. And so that's a huge question because that's you're getting into the spread out part. Is like if you do have guys who are consistently hitting three-point shots and all of a sudden Lopez now has to cover the ground and you know he gets into the stumps on skate stuff um, that, you know, or he's just like closing out and, and uh, fouling people awkwardly and you're really able to kind of pull him out of the paint and make him work. Um, you know, that plus minus huge win by him in the first round could go the other direction. And it's something that we were kind of waiting for, you know, and it's not clear to me, is, yeah. is Boston going to be able to do it? Uh, what Golden State would certainly try to do it because Lopez has been so good for Milwaukee that you definitely want to try to pick on him whenever possible. Um, I think right. if I was Stevens, like that would be probably the most important matchup of all of them uh, in terms of game planning. Yeah, exactly. And um, we'll see. The additional points I have written down here are the Celtics have actual good shooters while the Bucks have fake good shooters. And I think we saw some of this in the Utah series where a lot of those Jazz guys have higher percentages and grade out well with advanced metrics but are not actual good shooters. And um, I think you could say the same about a lot of guys on that Bucks roster where like, they can knock down open looks throughout the regular season, but contested in the playoffs, I think it's going to be a little bit of a different story. Whereas the Celtics, like, as much as we want to joke about the hype around Hayward's resurgence and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, there's a lot of easy opportunities to dunk on the Celtics for being overrated. I do think all those guys can knock down shots, which makes them a little bit scary in the playoffs. Okay, now you're just getting into pretty subjective territory. I think the counter argument would be, um, you know, you've got green goggles on. You just love everything about Boston, and then uh, you're <laughs> no you're way. not giving enough credit to Milwaukee's system. And you were saying who generated better shots in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, to me, there was no question that uh, Milwaukee generated I mean, better shots. And you could say, yeah. okay, Indiana has a better defense. Uh, I actually, you know, definitely agree with that. I mean, Detroit was nothing special by any stretch, but. Milwaukee is not asking as much of its shooters um, as Boston is asking of its shooters, right? Like Boston has better shot makers, but they're in situations where they need to do that more often than Milwaukee, where you've got Giannis, who is one of the best high percentage three-point creation guys in the entire league. And um, if Boston is able to defend him with less attention than we're expecting, you know, because everybody's had to just throw the kitchen sink at Giannis, right? If they come up with a scheme where like they're able to kind of wall him out of the paint and he's not getting to the rim as effectively as he did in last year's playoffs and as he did all season long, then I think those Mm -hmm. shooting questions really become an issue because now those guys are kind of firing under duress. But if he's able to collapse the defense like he has, uh, you know, basically for the last 12 months straight, I think those shooters are actually, you know, in, in positions to succeed. Now, I think the one, you know, big caveat to that is 
you know, Bledsoe has been a pretty key perimeter threat for them. I mean, he does a little bit of everything on offense, but they need his shooting too. And what's it going to look like in game three when you've got 20,000 Celtics fans screaming well, Ben, let me tell you something. It sounds like you are quietly agreeing with me or at least know exactly where I'm coming from when I say that Eric Bledsoe is a perfect example of the fake good shooter that I'm describing here. Brooke Lopez is as well, by the way. I, I don't know this terminology. I think you just made it up. Uh, so I'm not agreeing. <laughs> I don't- you left me practically speechless with some of these top thoughts, but I love it. <laughs> I don't mean that as a compliment either. Um, no, uh, I, th- no, I think you- that we we kind of disagree on the value of Milwaukee's system and Giannis's ability as a as a setup guy, and mm-hmm. they were not tested at all in the first round. So I think your skepticism is fair because <laughs> they need to show it. And at times in the, in the playoffs uh, of the past, their offense really, really ground down. I guess if I was a Bucks okay. fan, I understand where they're getting at you and kind of mocking you and, and throwing some numbers in your face and so forth because they've seen the offense work against basically everyone all season long. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And maybe it will continue working. The other thing that I think helps Boston, number one, Hayward is healthy and he's going to allow them to lean on Baines less. They may even start him at the beginning of this series, which again is going to help spread the Bucks out and um, probably help Boston win most of those minutes where they're going small. And then additionally, like, Brogdon is injured. Nikola Mirotic is not that great and hasn't been great since he got to Milwaukee. And outside of Middleton and, I guess, maybe Bledsoe, like, the Bucks don't have a ton of firepower around Giannis. And um, the last point I want to make here is that Ultimately, and God, this sounds like the ultimate Celtics homer, and it's fucking awful, and I apologize to everybody, but I do trust Brad Stevens to make adjustments faster than Mike Budenholzer, and the adjustment specifically that I worry about with Milwaukee is how quickly are they going to realize that their best chance to win this series is putting Giannis at the five, letting him guard Horford one-on-one, and and then throwing DJ Wilson in at the four and um, and running the defense that way. That's going to require them to deviate from what has made them the most successful team in the entire league for the last seven months. And Budenholzer has not shown a propensity to adapt in the past. And so I, I don't necessarily trust him to go to that look early enough or often enough to... Um, to kind of tip the scales. I think if they do that, there's like a 90% chance that the the Bucks win. But saving that, it's a toss-up, and I'm going with my Celtics. So that's a fair uh, point, no, no question about it. And that's one situation where you do wish they had gotten pushed a little bit by Detroit in the first round, right? So that he would have at least had mm-hmm. to think about those things. But now you're entering this series if you're Milwaukee, like as true believers in everything you've been doing all year long, right? Because they won those games in yeah. the first round by like an average of 20-something points. And like I was saying earlier, I mean, it basically came down to just a cardio event. You know, all it was is they were jogging up and down the court (laughs) and, you know, trying to like, you know, hopefully not injure Blake Griffin for life. I mean, that was sort of the point of the series. So um, if they're ever going to be in a situation where they're feeling themselves too much and feeling their philosophies too much and being unbending and, and, uh, you know, slow to adapt, this would be the series. Um, That said, I'm not as concerned about that as you are. I think that Giannis... Honestly, I don't know why you doubt this guy after all these years of, of preaching about him. I think Giannis can solve a lot of these issues. 
Yeah, and he might be able to because if he can guard Horford one-on-one where nobody's collapsing down on them and then you're making the Celtics guys beat them, I that's a, f- a perfectly fair call for the Bucks to make and say, you know what? Nope, we heard the first five minutes of Sharp's Celtics rant on Tuesday and we think that that's the real Celtics team. They are all completely overrated. Screw these guys. Kyrie is a fraud. And then go win it that way. Like, that's... That can work. And if Giannis dominates Horford and gets 35 or 40 points in most of these games, like the Bucks are going to be in great shape. The two adjustments I want to see from Milwaukee. One, Giannis needs to trade the green Hulu slippers for Air Freak ones, bring them out for the emotional boost in game one of this series. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, please, Nike, get on this. We've been begging. Second, uh, <laughs> I need to see Giannis play 42 minutes in game one. I mean, if it's a competitive game, no more, you know, it's time to take the bubble wrap off. It's time to let Giannis go out there. I mean, he should be at the free throw line 20 times in game one. Yeah, um, we shall see. I cannot wait for that game. And by the way, if the Bucks do advance, I would rather go to Milwaukee than Boston. I've been to Boston a lot over the last few years, and it would be cool to meet up with some of my Bucks Twitter people in Milwaukee. And if the Bucks make the finals... We are going to become the most insufferable pro Giannis podcast on the planet. So um, we already are. Either but way, we'll take our game yeah, to new heights. Uh, we'll probably have to do a sit-in at the cantina and be like, "How do you like us oh now?" Oh my god! Hey Andrew, guess what though? <laughs> guess what time it is? It's time for the lantern. Everyone's favorite segment. Okay, listen how me. excited you sound. This is real progress. This is great. It's, um, it's not just very, you, Andrew. Very fake. I got dozens. <laughs> Dozens of messages saying, thank God the Lantern's back. So I really appreciate everybody for sending those in. And Andrew, do you remember when Tupac Shakur famously said, um, Tupac care if don't nobody else care? I'm sure you remember that. Um, that's yep, that's how I course. feel about the Lantern too, Andrew. We had some people who were just bearing their souls. And I'm not going to read theirs because it got really personal um, this week. But I just want everybody to know, hey, look, I mean, use this uh, two-way communication. If you have uh, going through a rough patch, you just want somebody to talk to, send a message to the Lantern. I love hearing from you. Everybody, keep your heads up in the immortal words of Tupac. Now, with, with mm-hmm. that out of the way, this week's prompt was pretty simple. Everything broke perfectly for Damian Lillard, did it not? I mean, that was the ultimate Lillard moment. The whole thing could not have gone better. And at the same time, it was an absolute nightmare for Russell Westbrook. I mean, he must have felt like he was living in a nightmare uh, for basically three days straight. So the prompt was, has there been a moment in your life where you've either felt like Lillard or felt like Westbrook? And the answers were all over the map. Now, do you know this young guy, uh, Paolo Ugetti from The Ringer? I do. So he's always kind of, you know, creeping around the Staples Center, you know, trying to like point (laughs) point out to other people how much of a millennial hypocrite I actually am. And I appreciate him for that. I just want everyone. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, wait. That's a great, great point. Okay, nobody in the world is a bigger hypocrite than you are with regard to millennials and their lack of attention span, their obsession with social media (laughs) and going viral. It's the worst thing in the world. No, Paolo successfully roasts me constantly i think the air the topic of airpods came up recently and he was like but yeah you have your airpods <laughs> attached to your keychain and like on the table next to me was the airpods attached to the keychain everybody had a well a big hearty laugh at my expense that, <laughs> not only that you were always there day one whenever apple releases another dumbass product that no one needs that's like 750 dollars 
you're there. You're one of those people that camps out in front of the Apple store so you can be first in line. It's one of the saddest things in the world. Well, look, the only reason why I brought this up is so I could call Paolo out for being a millennial. Paolo, you sent in like a you know, one-sentence response to the lantern. I needed the full details of it, so I can't read your answer because you never got it to me because you got distracted probably by your day job. So thanks a lot. Great, great radio here, by the hey. way. Talking directly to Paolo Ugetti. <laughs> Look, he needs to be put on notice. That's all I'm saying. I actually think he's one of the most talented young writers. I'm giving him a shout out for that. Here's our here's okay. our number one answer, though, Andrew. Are you ready for, did you have a Lillard moment or did you have a Westbrook moment? Trady Baylor writes in, he says, this hurts me to say, but my watershed moment's more like Russ. My senior year of high school basketball, I was coming off a major injury. I'd almost broken my ankle the year before and had worked all summer to get to a healthy spot. I was dunking consistently and was so excited. About five games into the season, we were playing a team that hated us, and I went up to dunk over one of their players in the fourth quarter trying to make a statement. Instead of going for the ball, he went from my arms, immediately dislocating my right shoulder. I went parallel to the ground, and the impact popped my shoulder back into place. Needless to say, I missed at least six weeks of my senior season. That seems bad, right? Oh, it gets worse. Here comes the 40-foot step back in my face. Then the very next game, we played a little school that we'd never played before called Spartanburg Day School. They had an an okay team and one guy who was all right, but he was a freshman, maybe six foot two, and not the best player I'd ever played against. He dunked a few times, once over one of our players, but we only lost by seven points. Before I got injured, I was the leading scorer of our team that season, and I felt like if I had played, we could have won that game. Two years later, while talking to my brother, I realized that quote-unquote pretty good player was now the number two player in the country. He was now six foot seven, and his name was Zion Williamson. I had a chance to play the future number one overall NBA pick, and I missed out because a kid lost his temper and injured me. The worst part, he didn't even come over and check on me after it happened at the time, including the end of the game. To give some context, I went to a very small school. There was only 80 people in my graduating class, so it's not like we were playing against amazing competition on a regular basis. I just happened to be from the same area as Zion, and that's why we played them. So what do you think, Andrew? (laughs) I mean, we've all had some bad beats when it comes to the basketball court. There's no question about it, but that's one that's going to haunt this guy for the rest of his life, don't you think? Yeah, but he he can at least lean on that particular story. I mean, that's still something you can bring up because the the value of playing freshman year Zion is basically being able to talk about it for the next 50 years. And he could still do that. Just pretend he was his senior year Zion. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I played against Zion in high school. Look, we gave him the business. It's very, very tough. There's no question about it. But um, still a decent story. By the way, the the injury that he's describing where he like falls horizontally and separates his shoulder. That's what I was talking about with Montrez Harrell. Every time he goes to the hoop, he's going like 200 miles an hour and 50 inches in the air. And I'm just like, this cannot end well. You're going to end up breaking your back. But, um, he continues to thrive, so shout out to him, so, but that's all I got. We got another good story on sports that was from Lukey Linden, you know, one of our MVP Open Floor uh, Globe members. Uh, his basically uh-huh. it was a similar, you know, like success and then failure on the golf course, and his recommendation was that because Lillard is such a, a mentally 
uh, combustible player. He should maybe try to take up golf, and, and that way he doesn't have to worry about his teammates. Um, but Wait, do you mean Westbrook is such a mentally combustible player? Correct, yes. He thought that, you know, basically okay. after all these struggles, uh, he might just fit in perfectly on the golf course. Um, here comes... <laughs> he would be it, the worst golfer in the history of the world. <laughs> I think he was being sarcastic yes. with the idea, but yes. Yeah, lack of mental toughness does not mean you should go play golf, but go ahead. Can you imagine being his caddy? Like, how much abuse are you getting from Westbrook on the courts? How, lo- yeah, how yeah. many holes do you think you could last as Russell Westbrook's caddy? I don't know, man. Prayers up for Billy Donovan. That's basically been his existence for the last three years. The over-under is set at 3.5. All right. Uh, This one's coming in from Luke Walker. And I'm going to admit, I don't necessarily... I just This is a disclaimer up front. The open floor does not uh, endorse or condone uh, Luke Walker's behavior. Okay, here it comes. Uh, My Damian Lillard moment happened this year. It was my first year of college. During my communications class, I found out that my professor was an anti-Semite, anti-homosexual rights advocate, and an anti-women's rights advocate. She is a 70-year-old woman. After I did some creeping around on the internet, I found her Twitter and I decided to leak the news. I followed that up by over-exaggerating and in tweeting, should I key her car or light her house on fire? And surprisingly, a lot of people supported me saying this because of her beliefs. Anyways, Mm -hmm. the teacher found my tweet, surprise, surprise, and launched a full-on investigation of me. I ended up almost being charged with a couple different things, and I just barely avoided being expelled. During the school board hearings, I was able to plead my case and state that my tweet was just a literary trope. I eventually was able to get off scot-free while my professor is now quote-unquote retired. I forgot to mention that they wouldn't remove me from her class, so it made for a very awkward semester. But because he was able to stay in college and he outlasted his teacher, he is willing to claim this as a Damian Lillard moment. (laughs) Andrew, what do you think about Luke's behavior? Um, I can't really approve. And I would also say, well, first of all, like this is why (laughs) Twitter, everybody should tweet less. (laughs) That's a terrible idea to tweet something like that. And honestly, Luke, his name's Luke, right? Correct. Okay, this seems like the type of situation that Russell Westbrook would claim as like a triumphant victory (laughs) when in reality it's been like mutually assured destruction for just about everyone involved. Um, And that's the beauty of Lillard is that he was... He, it, these were calculated strikes from Lillard. <laughs> so what you're, this was less calculated from Luke. So Luke went five for thirty-five, but he hit the game winner. <laughs> well, he hit the game winner. I don't know about that. He didn't get traded, and so Westbrook could come out of a series like that and be like, "Yeah, I mean, I'm still here. I'm the franchise guy in OKC. I'm getting forty million dollars a year." I think that's where Luke is right now. He's going to be allowed to graduate, but this is not the type of thing that is going to be something he looks back on as like a career-defining win as Lillard's was this week. That's true. This is going to be a growth moment, Luke. Look, if... if, (laughs) Yeah, more of a growth moment. If both of us... I think we're level-headed guys, right? If we're both kind of judging Luke here for the behavior, look, let's not harass people on social media. Great point. Um, uh, Thank you for that context, Andrew. See, this is why we do this, because you're Dr. Sharp. You're bringing people back to reality. Luke... As, well, as LeBron James would say, be better tomorrow. Let's try to keep the beefs out of your next semester of college. I have a question for you. I mean, have you ever had anything approaching a Lillard moment? 
Um, well, I certainly did not prepare for this. Let me think. Uh, how about you? I mean, clearly this is why we do it. So you go first and I'll, I'll back you up. Um, I haven't. I thought about it before the podcast since I knew we were reviving the good old lantern here. And the problem I have is that I have never had a feud rise to the level of what Westbrook and Lillard were dealing with over the past couple weeks, um, or I guess a couple years. So that's number one. I've never had someone I, I wanted to own as badly as Lillard wanted to own Westbrook. Um, I think it would require like you and I having a falling out where we go different directions and become like intense professional rivals. And then I would have to dunk on you publicly at like the NBA finals or something. I hope that never happens. That actually, but <laughs> that actually now sounds great. Uh, let's, let's hopefully <laughs> no, I, you triggered my memory though. Don't you think my Lillard moment was the DeMar DeRozan exit from Toronto? You know, oh, cause that God. was like a what two a year, Lillard very moment, intense back yes. and forth. And he wound up, <laughs> Not only getting ejected, not only getting swept, but also getting traded basically right on the schedule that I forecast. And, you know, he choked again in the postseason. That, I mean, it almost felt too good to be possible when it was happening. And I tried not to dunk too much. I wasn't waving him off the court or anything. But in hindsight, that was that was pretty Lillard-esque. Yeah, um, it was. And it's, it's weird. DeRozan, we almost never talk about him anymore. Probably more of a Spurs thing than a DeRozan thing. But um, well. the other thing that I was going to mention is in a basketball context, I did have one walk-off game winner oh. in my career. I was not a very good basketball player at any point Wait, in my what life. Grade? I've loved the game. Doesn't always translate. I was in college. Wow. And what happened was... I was part of an intramural team, and I was actually late to the game because Lil Wayne had just released the Drought 3, and so it was a Sunday afternoon, and I spent like three hours listening to the Lil Wayne mixtape, showed up midway through the second quarter of this intramural game, was not really locked in, was definitely not playing with a purpose. Unbelievable. But... I hung around and I was floating three point line to three point line, just like always, because that's my game, kind of like Rodney Hood. And um, I, I hung around to the end. It was a tie game. It was the intramural playoffs, I believe. It may not have been a playoff game. But anyways, with time running out, I hit a buzzer beating three to win the game for my team. And um was mobbed by my teammates. It was a great little moment. I, I, uh, it's probably my proudest basketball achievement of my life. That is wild. I mean, I'm disgusted by you, the player, even more than I am disgusted by you, the <laughs> podcast host. I mean, so much of that story explains a lot. I mean, you know, your waiter's tendencies, uh, you know, your yep. love for these guards. It all came out there. But congratulations, that sounds awesome. You is there tape? Can we get a can we get a VHS tape of this? No, you know what? I'll have a couple college friends um, send in some like audio files, and they we can do a little oral history over the summer of my intramural game winner. That sounds awesome. Maybe we should just read back some emails from the termites, you know, expressing their rust moments after uh, the big debate, and we can just really <laughs> turn this into a back padding session. Okay, we got another one real quick from Austin Bailey, who wanted to compare Russell Westbrook to the Mongols' uh, failed invasions of Japan. I'm going to spare you that one, but I did really enjoy it. The last one here is from Saf, and it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. He writes, 
The Bay Area speech and debate scene is incredibly competitive. The region that I was in consistently ranked as top three in the country, and kids like me would sacrifice all their spare time to try and win a major tournament. The high school that I attended provided zero support to our program. They actually placed time restriction on our on-campus practices and tried to prevent us from attending tournaments because they deemed it a liability to travel. Since we were completely student-funded, it was only possible for us to pay one coach to teach a handful of events. At the same juncture, other high schools, often private, had well-funded programs and they would try to steal our coaches away by offering them a pay raise. Long story short, it's my junior year of high school and my partner and I are the only team from our school to make it to the playoff rounds of the Stanford uh, debate tournament. As the lowest seeded team, we hyped ourselves up with premature celebrations only to get knocked out in the first round in an embarrassing defeat where all five judges voted against us. Despite this humbling loss, my partner and I swore that we would return and win it all in our senior year. Fast forward one year to the morning of the Stanford tournament, and I tragically lose my voice on the first day. Instead of quitting, I went on a three-day Ricola and green tea diet to soothe my, my throat. It gave me my voice back for a short period of time and allowed me to orate, but with diminishing returns mm-hmm. on my overall volume after every round. We ended up going undefeated in the qualifying rounds and were ranked as the top-seeded team in the playoffs. The thought of potentially choking away a number one seed like the Mavs in 2007 was definitely stressing me out prior to our first elimination round. My partner and I continued to grind it out, defeating old rivals and new competitors until we reached the finals and won on a 5-0 decision. It was a nearly perfect tournament, but we were stopped short by a 4-1 decision in our semifinal round. Years of inexperience, uncertainty with coaching, and administrative interference had always gotten in our way, but the struggle was all worth it for that one incredible send-off. It also gave our program a sense of legitimacy among the administration and student body that ensured it would continue to thrive for years to come. And then he actually sent me a picture of his trophy, Andrew, and this thing was beaten up pretty bad. I mean, it was supposed to be an angel, but the angel's head was you know, knocked off. It's clear that he had really cared for this thing. But that is almost the most perfect analogy to what the Blazers have been through these last like five to 10 years that I can think of. You know what I mean? The administration stuff, the inexperience, the uncertainty, losing to the Pelicans, dealing with all those bad signings in the summer of 2016. Who would have thought that our buddy Saf from the Bay Area speech and debate circuit would be able to summarize it better than we ever could hope to summarize it? Who would have thought? So that first round Blazers win is Saf's beat up trophy from the t- debate tournament. It did, the first round Blazers win, and particularly that game winner from Dame, is basically like a title. Like if if I were a Blazers fan, I'd be like, you know what? I'm good. I don't care what happens in the conference finals or whatever. Raise the banner. That was amazing. <laughs> the shot. Yeah, raise the banner. <laughs> exactly. I think it's more the wave, uh, but just in general, it was all the 10 out of 10. Um Honestly, the debate story wasn't as triumphant, I think, in part because it was longer, harder for me to follow. It was less sad than your dunking on DeMar DeRozan, though, so Sav's got that going for him. So either way, though, 
another solid edition of the land. Look, I'm going to stand up for my guy's staff, okay? He made it for all four quarters. He didn't just mosey in, jog halfway in through the second quarter <laughs> and try to take all the credit. Unbelievable. I, you know what, man? He debated, Drought three was a good mixtape. He debated with a purpose. I could promise you that. I just love all the different people that that uh, chip in on the lantern, Andrew. It's always fun. People from different walks of life always find these common bonds of competition, and it's what makes this podcast Absolutely. go. Hey, you guys can email us openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Also, check us out on Apple Podcasts. Our page is on there. Just search for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page. Scroll down. There's a section that says rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. Also, check me out on Instagram at Oliver, And of course, we're on the world famous radio.com slash open floor. Hey, Andrew, until next week, I will talk to you. Awesome, man. Talk to you soon.